Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the third installment of the Cold War Crash. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In the last two episodes, we introduced you guys to the aftermath of the Second World War, where Europe was in pieces, and it was becoming apparent to all that times were changing. 
Some powers took longer to realise and accept these changes than others, but the advent of the Marshall Plan and the increased American involvement in European affairs certainly helped streamline this process. In those two episodes, we have referred to the Soviet Union only in passing, without all that much analysis of its outlook, or perhaps more importantly, the outlook of its stalwart but increasingly paranoid chairman, Joseph Stalin. In this episode then, we turn our attentions to the East, to the ominous powers of the Soviets, to their increasing control over the lives and governments of those states, immediately in the path of the Red Army, and to the rhetoric and inclinations of the polity's leader. It is a necessary exercise if we're going to properly place our narrative of the Korean War in the context it requires, and to place the actions of Stalin in particular during the course of his intervention in that same context. We have already been made familiar with the idea that the interests of Europe and the strategic challenge which Western European security posed to the Anglo-American allies was connected to the course of the Korean War. And in this episode we examine how it was that Eastern Europe also played a role. First, before we properly delve into that though, we must also examine how it was that the Cold War actually came to be. Without any further ado then, let's get into it, as I take you to 1945. It is possible that the truth may be the reason for what appears to be an aggressive intent on the part of the communists to tear down all governmental institutions based upon individual freedoms. Dwight D. Eisenhower, speaking in 1948. towards Germany in the spring of 1945 was impacted by political as much as military concerns. General Eisenhower could have reached Berlin before the Russians, poised as he was in a strategically ideal position. The Russians continued to do the most difficult heavy lifting in the east, and the British further to the south also held up the German attentions. Eisenhower's more modern columns of tanks and his larger amount of manpower in comparison to General Montgomery's mostly British and Dominion army gave him great strategic advantages, and he received regular urgings from important Allied figures, including Winston Churchill, to advance into Berlin before Stalin's forces could actually get there. American casualties in the previous Battle of the Bulge weighed heavily on the ailing President Roosevelt's mind, but the factor which caused the President to command his general to halt the advance on the German capital more than any other was the consideration that Stalin was known to have a keen interest in Berlin. Stalin's favour and the need which the Western Allies still had of him for the sake of the war with Japan compelled Roosevelt to look at the situation from the point of view of military strategy as much as diplomatic necessity. The idea that Stalin could still help the West, and that the West very much needed Stalin's help, greatly influenced the proceedings of the Allies in the final months of the war and in the war's immediate aftermath. Once peace became the norm, the help which Stalin could contribute was still seen in terms of the Soviet contribution towards the German question, and it took some time before the Anglo-American bloc realised that Stalin's ambitions for Germany were incompatible with their own. From Stettin in the Baltic 
to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe. Warsaw, Berlin, Prague, Vienna, Budapest, Belgrade, Bucharest, and Sofia. All these famous cities and the populations around them lie in what I must call the Soviet sphere. What is needed is a settlement. And the longer this is delayed, the more difficult it will be and the greater our dangers will become. From what, what I have seen of our Russian friends and allies during the war, I am convinced that there is nothing they admire so much as strength. And there is nothing for which they have less respect than for weakness, especially military weakness. The point of this little anecdote is to shed light on a fairly significant point. If it can be taken as fact that not all the powers involved knew in 1945 what exactly lay ahead, then it must also be appreciated that for some time the Cold War had in fact begun already, in the 1920s, rather than here in the mid-1940s. The reason why Churchill urged Eisenhower forwards wasn't for the sake of Allied glory, but because Churchill had in fact made his name in Parliament in the 1920s and 30s, before Nazi Germany loomed larger in his view at least, denouncing the dangers of Bolshevism and the threat posed by Soviet Russia. The Red Scare, which followed on from the Red Victory in the Russian Civil War in the early 1920s, added further venom to Churchill's warnings, but Churchill was far from the only prophet on Soviet danger. In France, the interwar coalitions which proved so destabilizing to French domestic and political life were dominated by anti-communist rhetoric whenever the parties on the right were in control. Fanning the flames of communism was, in fact, one of the most potent weapons that the right possessed in France. Similarly in Spain, the Spanish Civil War illuminated, in General Francisco Franco's mind, the dangers which communism and the left could pose to Spanish stability. In Poland, the freshly established Republic of Poland fought a bitter and historically undervalued war against the Soviet Union from 1919 to 20, which had the net result of containing communism in the East, and above all preserving Poland's shaky, ultimately doomed experiment in independence. Of course, the most evident source of bad news about communism came from the Soviet Union itself. For those Americans and Europeans, informed enough to receive news on the show trials, the purges and the punitive famines inflicted on the Ukraine in the 1920s and 30s, the Soviet Union appeared like the enemy of the Western ideal and value in every sense. Stalin was only further aggravated by this Western hostility, especially when it came from the Western intellectual, which it generally did. This explains the widespread Soviet hostility towards any European intelligentsia not already subscribed towards the Soviet way of thinking. This hostility would be extended towards Eastern Europe's very professions in the post-war years, as criticism of party doctrine, or more accurately, Stalin's way of doing things, would not be tolerated. Stalin was fundamentally suspicious of anyone who spent time in the West, since they would be the most likely to become tainted by the ideals of capitalism. He could not and would not tolerate a Soviet figure in a high position of influence who had spent a significant time in the West. Oh no, this would not do. You see, the best version of a Soviet bureaucrat in either a foreign capital as a leader of the native Communist Party there or back home in Stalin's mind was one who spent plenty of time in Moscow 
and as little time as possible elsewhere. To Stalin, agreement was not sufficient. All he tolerated was obedience. There could be no wavering from the party line, and there could be no question of a communist regime going into business for itself, without first deferring and then remaining regularly connected with Moscow. Such an uncompromising position would gradually alienate the different members of the communist parties in Italy, Belgium and France, but for a time, especially in the Italian case, communism did appear to be a viable alternative, and communists were regularly counted as being in coalition with some of the leftist party blocs that governed these post-war states. Stalin's uncompromising position on his version of the Marxist message, and on his authority above all, had been communicated during the aforementioned show trials of the 1930s, where the terror which engulfed the Soviet Union and sent many loyal members of their party to their deaths characterised the deteriorating domestic situation. Stalin was immensely fortunate that his countrymen managed to pull together during the German invasion in spite of the fact that some of their most capable commanders had been needlessly liquidated in the years that preceded the outbreak of the war. It is more accurate then to see the Second World War not as an opportunity for Stalin to ingratiate himself towards the West or vice versa, but as an interlude in the entrenched hostility which the West felt for the threat, the pull and the bloody governance of Soviet communism. The Second World War represented a break with the past, and even while many French communists, for example, retained a certain awestruck respect for Soviet accomplishments in the military sense during the war, seen in their veneration of Stalingrad, Kursk and the unflinching advance of the Red Army, critics of communism and of Stalin's opportunism would not go away. One is struck by the avid anti-communism of Britain's King Edward VIII, whose uncomfortably relaxed stance on the Nazis and his belief that the Soviet Union was, in fact, the bigger threat, did not by any means represent a tiny minority. Especially in the years leading up to the full-blown invasion of Czechoslovakia by the Nazis in the spring of 1939, after having annexed the Sudetenland in the previous autumn, many Britons could claim that Hitler wanted peace, and that he was only righting the wrongs of the Versailles Treaty. Chamberlain's declaration that there would be peace in our time, and his genuine belief in Hitler's sincerity, is easy to criticise today considering the course that Hitler subsequently took, but the cheers which accompanied Chamberlain's announcement should illustrate that if war with Germany was a concern, it was a concern only to a small and alienated minority, including, famously, Winston Churchill. The news of the Molotov-Ribbentrop non-aggression pact sent shockwaves throughout Europe, but while the pact is often represented in history as the last hope of the West, Stalin signing off on Hitler's war, it is worth considering the possibility that some in Britain, not yet disenchanted with the person of Adolf Hitler, saw it as the fault of Stalin and as Hitler agreeing to the pact to secure German security in the East. Public opinion was of course a fickle resource, but Stalin's pessimism and his desire to sign the non-aggression pact was presented rather easily as a further example of that dictator's advancement of his own interests. The pact was business as usual in the minds of those that had viewed the Soviet Union as the greatest threat to democracy all along. In the Soviet camp, of course, the wounds of intense Western intervention in the Russian Civil War remained present. Neither Stalin nor his remaining allies ever forgot the force of Western reaction to Russia's embrace of communism. Added to this sense of alienation was the Soviet absence from any organisations or international agencies for over 15 years, an absence which was based on the not unreasonable belief that, if they had to choose, Western governments would choose fascists over communists without much hesitation. When the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union began, 
Stalin repeatedly found to his immense frustration that the Western Allies were slow to intervene. This unwillingness to make a proper military commitment from the point of view of Washington and especially London came from a general unpreparedness and from the strength of the Nazi position, but to Stalin it was easy to connect previous dots to this Western inaction and to believe that the real reason for Allied inaction was because both Washington and London enjoyed the prospect of seeing Nazism and Communism batter one another into a mutually assured destruction. Seen in this way, the subsequent mistrust of the Allies during the war and the unwillingness of the Americans and British to furnish the Soviets with the true extent of their military intelligence, seen most infamously in the secret of the atomic bomb, even if Stalin's spy network helped unearth the project, proposes an interesting alternative to the idea that the West and East were gradually ripped apart by the events of post-war Europe. Rather than being ripped apart, the two sides were merely returning to their old pedestals of opposition to one another, which they had previously held. If the Second World War was an interlude in the democratic hostility to communism, then the Cold War which followed that conflict was a return to tradition and history, rather than a new era within it. The major difference between 1939 and 1945, when it came to East-West competition, was the fact that the democratic West held sway over an embattled but potentially powerful block of states, while communism could now claim to rule over a large tract of land never before included under the Soviet writ. Because more was thus at stake then, the historical memory and demonstrated differences, which had always provided reasons for tension and mistrust, were only exacerbated. On the 26th of April 1945, the US Joint Chiefs of Staff issued a directive to the newly established President Truman, which declared unreservedly that it should be brought home to the Germans that Germany's ruthless warfare in the fanatical Nazi resistance has destroyed the German economy and made chaos and suffering inevitable and that Germans cannot escape responsibility for what they have brought upon themselves. Germany will not be occupied for the purpose of liberation but as a defeated enemy nation. Adding to this, Secretary of the Treasury Henry Morgenthau noted that it is of the utmost importance that every person in Germany should realise that, this time, Germany is a defeated nation. 1945-46, and to some extent 1947, were the years of containing the German threat, or trying to find a way to answer the German question, and of making sure that the same mistakes made after Versailles in 1919 were never made again. In the next episode of the Cold War Crash Course, we'll examine the Allied policy on Germany, and how the two spheres of Germany came to be cemented in the establishment of an East and West German state. But for now it should suffice to note how important it was felt to be among the Allies to bring home to the Germans that they were defeated. The post-war Germany must be purged of all Nazis, its native industry must be destroyed, and its capacity for waging any kind of war must be so hampered to the extent that it would never again be in a position to hold Europe to ransom. The opposing view to this aim, and the policy which eventually won out and which we've seen develop even over the last two episodes, was to create in Germany a strong, stable, but determinedly pro-Western state which could fend for itself, but which was also acutely aware of its past. What good would it do to reduce Germany to the equivalent of a paralysed rump state? This would only place the bill of occupation and defence of this unattractive land on the lap of the Americans, the British and the French, who all possessed their own zones of occupation. What was more, and the argument which eventually sealed the deal in favour of a moderate policy, was that by treating the Germans like dirt, the Allies would play into the hands of the reactionaries, 
of neo-Nazis, of communists, and of Stalin himself, who was eager to see the Western occupation end and a full-blown Soviet takeover of Germany to the Rhine proceed. The question of Germany was impossible to answer, the Allies believed, unless Stalin was on board also to propose solutions. It was only when the penny truly dropped in the Conference of Foreign Ministers in spring 1947 that it became abundantly clear how little Stalin could be relied upon. Until that point, and especially in 1945, the Allies were eager to see that Stalin pulled his weight in Germany, and that he contributed to keeping the German threat low. It may seem naive to us that the Anglo-American bloc believed at all in Soviet sincerity, or that Stalin would have approved of any other German settlement than the one which saw him hold all the cards. Yet the American view especially in several prominent statesmen in 1945 and 46 was that the wartime alliance with the Soviets could be continued. For this to be made possible, some senators publicly discredited any sources which pointed to Soviet atrocities or to Stalin's murderous regime. You see, Uncle Joe still reigned supreme in many American minds, but the reason for this was not all due simply to some misplaced innocence in Washington. We've mentioned before that President Truman was under a great deal of pressure to bring the boys home and reduce the United States' military and financial contributions in Europe, and that American divisions were reduced from 97 to 12 over the course of a year and a half, a fact which greatly troubled the British and French at the time. Truman's concerns in the aftermath of such an all-consuming war were to make Americans happy and to focus on the peace. A poll in October 1945, a month after the war with Japan had been successfully concluded, put domestic concerns far ahead of foreign ones. According to that poll, only 7% of Americans believed that foreign concerns were of more importance than the situation at home, and Truman had to respect the will of the majority, particularly since all would have a say in whether he would retain his seat in the 1948 election. To this, we must add that American efforts to exit the continent went hand in glove with the idea that, in America's absence, the Soviets would be willing to do more to secure Germany's future. This policy did not last, and it could not last, so long as the Soviet Union had no real interest in fairly dividing or governing Europe, let alone adhering to the American interests. But we must bear in mind that American diplomats were undergoing what Tony Judd has described as a steep learning curve in the post-war years. As late as autumn 1946, while the alliance with the Soviets and the favour of Stalin was upheld to be of profound importance, American reports were becoming harder to ignore about the difficulties and frustrations in dealing with their Soviet counterparts. This was because, of course, Stalin's view of what must come next in the European order and the position of the Soviet Union within this order would not and could not be compromised upon. Stalin was looking to expand the Soviet writ and thus his own power as far west as possible, and it seems to have taken some time for the Americans and British to fully appreciate this. It should also be said that the British and Americans were dealing with their own petty squabbles. The 1937 Neutrality Act in the United States remained a bitter pill for the British to swallow, especially as they remembered the impact which isolationism had had on Europe, and the disaster it could lead to if such a policy was pursued again. In the face of the known American desire to extricate itself from Europe and the reduced American military contribution, it wasn't hard for British politicians and certain critics of British policy to anticipate a second American withdrawal into isolationism. Stalin, of course, would have been only too pleased to see the Americans go. 
but so would some of the British politicians in the new Labour government led by Clement Attlee, who had taken the reins from Winston Churchill in a shocking landslide Labour victory. According to a minority view within that party, the absence of the Americans would give Europe a chance to gather into a neutral bloc of mutually assured defence pacts, representing a third way between Soviets and Americans. In Clement Attlee's own words, though, such an option didn't hold all that much water. He said, Some in the Labour Party thought we ought to concentrate all our efforts in building up a third force in Europe. Very nice, no doubt, but there wasn't either a spiritual or a material basis for it at the time. What remained of Europe wasn't strong enough to stand up to Russia by itself. You had to have a world force because you were up against a world force. Without the stopping power of the Americans, the Russians might easily have tried sweeping right forward. I don't know whether they would, but it certainly wasn't a possibility you could just ignore. The British knew well the flavour of American isolationism, since they had sprinkled that flavour on their own policies in the past. In the 19th century and up until the dispatch of the British Expeditionary Force in 1914, Britain's official line was one of, if not necessarily splendid isolationism, then at least an entrenched caution regarding continental entanglements. America, it seemed, was better able to withdraw to its continent than the British were able to retreat to their isles, but the central idea in that policy remained the same. The times had certainly changed for the British, and isolation from Europe was no longer really possible in the way that it had once been, but neither was a partnership with the Americans all that London could pursue. Acknowledging an undercurrent of hesitation in a complete reliance on Washington, the British went ahead with their own nuclear weapons program in January 1947. Of course, the production of atomic bombs would only demonstrate their significance in the long term, so by and large the Labour Party and its statesmen did encourage American involvement in Europe. And even if the Cold War had not fully spread its wings by early 1947 and German revanchism remained a threat, the Soviets also could not be ignored. That the British thus had a lot going on was clear, and the very unclear question of how best to proceed in Europe was also a problem. London knew it needed American involvement to prop up its own commitment in Europe, but another, perhaps more uncomfortable fact was one which was only gradually coming into view. The vaunted need to punish the Germans and make them see the error of their ways was not working, and Britain was footing huge and unsustainable bills in its occupation zone so long as Germany remained low. The situation to the German question thus took on a new urgency in the British mind, because they were being bankrupted still further, by the cost of the German occupation, as much as they are being aggrieved by the rumours of total American withdrawal from Europe, and of Soviet intentions to swallow the continent whole. British and American estimations were complicated by the person of Joseph Stalin, because that Soviet chairman proved at times utterly impossible to read. This explains how it was that individuals in both Britain and the United States had such varied opinions of Stalin, and how come some US senators as much as British Labour politicians, could believe that Stalin wished to see the wartime alliance continue. While Stalin did not want a war, at least not yet, he did have the military capacity in 1946 to launch one. The Red Army's prestige and power had been greatly bolstered by the events of the fight back against the Nazis, and the image of Stalingrad did much to erase the memory of the ills of communism in those already sympathetic to the Soviet plight. The narrative of a heroic Soviet victory, of a great patriotic war, was so effective precisely because it held several nuggets of truth. 
Stalin's ability to recast the war not as one pitting fascism versus communism, but as German Teuton against Russian Slav, proved profoundly important. The war's indescribably bitter character, the racial, ideological fuel which so characterized it, and the destruction which it inflicted upon the Soviet Union, did much to instill in Stalin a further paranoia for his position and that of his polity in world affairs. Stalin's aim was thus to establish a firm buffer zone of satellites between his Union and that of the West, and to prevent a German threat from ever surfacing again. Western sympathy to Stalin's plight and ambitions help explain how Stalin managed to acquire the approval of the British, French and Americans for his own unique reparations policy. The countries of Hungary, Bulgaria and Romania were uniquely positioned to feel the full force of the Soviet rule of law, but they also had the misfortune to side with the defeated Axis, and for that they had to be punished. Stalin's strategy for punishing these entities was to further impoverish them and to draw vast sums of money from their already depleted coffers. In the case of states that had not been on the wrong side, payments were extracted from them on the basis of their mutual affinity with the Soviet Union and of the protection which Stalin would give to them against any new German threat rather than on the basis of past crimes. Yet the impact and the result was the same even if the excuse was different. It is striking, although not terribly surprising, that Stalin pulled from these Eastern Bloc countries a sum roughly equivalent to that amount which the United States invested in the West during the course of the Marshall Plan. The net result of this policy was to deplete, depress and destroy the already fragile economies of the East, and to render them utterly dependent upon the Soviets as a result. In some cases, it is fair to say that some of these Eastern European countries have yet to fully recover their economic strength or political stability. The legacies of the Cold War and of the Second World War before it are not so easily overcome. It is worth pointing out that the Soviet policy with respect to Eastern Europe was not without precedent. The Russian act of belittling one's neighbours to the East was the go-to security policy of the Tsars. And Peter the Great, a figure who we'll be familiarising ourselves with in Poland is not yet lost, established this precedent in his quest to create Russian protectorates in Russia's neighbours, most notably in Poland. It must also be added that in line with this Soviet hearkening back to Russian traditions in foreign policy, Stalin's own beliefs and expectations have to be considered. Stalin sincerely believed that a war between Britain and America over capitalist markets was in the pipeline, and he also anticipated that the Soviet Union would be forced to weigh in on one side or the other in an additional war which could come in a generation or within the next decade, depending on the behaviours of the Western powers. For this reason, Stalin was eager to cement Soviet rule over Eastern Europe and to solidify the native communist movements in each of these states. At the same time, though, because he believed that the Western Bloc contained so many issues which would lead to tension and then to war, Stalin believed that time was on his side. Above all, we should not forget that Stalin, much like the Western powers, was flying by the seat of his pants most of the time, even if he believed in certain eventualities. In addition, Stalin was seriously averse to taking any undue risks, and he would not launch any invasion of Europe for this reason. Instead, he preferred to bide his time, and take advantage of any opportunities that presented themselves. So said Norman Neymark, historian specialising in the Soviet occupation of eastern Germany, when he noted that The Soviets were driven by concrete events in the zone, rather than by preconceived plans or ideological imperatives.
Stalin and his allies intended to uphold the evident but unofficial division of Europe into the east and west. Thus, in the absence of Red Army troops in Paris or Prague, for example, Stalin did not act with as much direct force as, say, in Hungary, and he largely ignored Western criticisms of Soviet policy in those Western capitals where Soviet power was not entrenched. However, in the event that Western critics extended their gaze east, the Soviets responded with a sense of palpable indignation and irritation. Such feelings were expressed in a note from Molotov in February 1945, wherein the Soviet foreign minister explained his irritation at Western interference in Poland. Molotov wrote, How governments are being organised in Belgium, France and Greece, etc., we do not know, we have not been asked, although we do not say that we like one or another of these governments. We have not interfered, because it is the Anglo-American zone of action. Through such a note, Molotov was essentially arguing for a policy which saw the West mind its own business because the Soviets had minded theirs. As any examination of Soviet intrigue and espionage in the West would demonstrate, of course, this was not generally the case, but Stalin's natural caution would never have led him to make war in regions where the communist or reach of the Red Army could not be guaranteed, and thus the Soviet writ would only run up to a point of Europe where it was possible to push it. The one notable exception to this, as the Western governments were soon to discover, was in Germany, where Stalin genuinely expected the Western arrangements to fall apart and for the whole of Germany to fall easily into his hands. This, incidentally, was what led Stalin to approve on the Berlin blockade scheme. Far from wanting war with this scheme, Stalin instead wanted to call the Allied bluff by holding Berlin and pouring scorn on the joint Allied occupation of the country. Next time, we'll continue our analysis of the Soviet position as we also watch Germany shift into its more recognisable shape. The four-power division of the country was certainly unsustainable, as London and increasingly Washington were coming to realise, but only in spring 1947 were the realities of the situation laid bare. The Soviets, far from willing to cooperate in the division of post-war Germany, were unilaterally committed to establishing their total control over the country and they would stonewall all Allied suggestions to the contrary until they got what they wanted. The penny dropped, and it dropped in such a way as to represent an end to innocence. From spring 1947, the Big Three's vaunted alliance was over and the Cold War had begun. Until the time comes that we cover such weighted events though, history friends, in other words, tomorrow, (laughs) it's time for me to take my leave. My name is Zach, thanks for listening to this third episode of the Cold War Crash Course, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.